0: Again, it is the 9th of November, and if you missed the first hour, please go and get it later, Uh, streaming at—no, not streaming, on demand. I think think that's our new lingo. On demand at MyFaithRadio.com or on demand on the Faith Radio app. All right, here we go. Um, Former President Barack Obama told young people yesterday at the Climate Summit in Glasgow, Scotland— uh, to stay angry and keep fighting. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to say be people who sow peace <clears throat> and cultivate the culture in which we live to the glory of God uh, and produce in each of our lives and therefore our collective life a harvest of righteousness. That that would be my contrarian uh, speech. Um, Here's what's going on. COP26 is the name of the conference, uh, climate change conference going on in Glasgow, Scotland. This is, uh, I understand it, uh, the final week of that conference. And they have set all kinds of targets for climate. And yesterday, one of the things that I heard um, that made me like pause um, was that ultimately only 4 percent – of the overall change that is needed based on the conversations going on at this conference, only 4% of the changes that are needed are things that you and I as like end of line consumers can actually do. So um, I say that to say that sometimes that which dominates the headlines, um, when you distill it right down to how much can you and I actually do about it, it's like super duper small. I'm not saying we shouldn't do our 4% share. 4% is actually not going to move the needle. So that's why you hear um, governments uh, pressing commercial enterprises to make massive change because they are the ones that would ultimately move the needle. 96% of the decisions uh, related to climate targets, particularly in relationship to fossil fuel, um, 96 percent of those decisions have to be made by governments and commercial enterprises. So the whole conversation um, reminded me of something that President Biden insisted on a few months ago, and that is that half of all car sales in America would be non-gas powered by 2030. And so if you're driving a Tesla, you can tune out for the next minute. But if you're like me and the prospect of $4 a gallon gas is actually seriously cutting into your um. Christmas plans and your Christmas spending on your people, then then pay attention to this for just a second. Because when I think about President Biden's insistence that half of all cars be electric powered or alternative fuel powered by 2030, I'm thinking that he has not met my family and he hasn't met the people who live on my street. So, okay, so I live on a street on a road called Street. So it's called Street Road. I know. I know. Go ahead. Get your giggles out. Um, One family on our street. um, I could see one family. There's one family on our street that I could see like, oh, absolutely choosing an electric vehicle the next time that they go buy one. There's two drivers in that household. Um, They they're not farming their land. Um, Yeah, I I could absolutely see them uh, going green on their next vehicle. However, however, their gas-powered 4x4 that they use to get around their property and the gas-powered mower that they use to cut down their 10 acres of grass and their diesel-powered tractor, um, yeah, none of those are going uh, alternative fuel. I guess I can, okay, their neighbors, um, no. I see no conversion to electric or hybrid um, for the household next door to the one that I just described. They've got four drivers in their family, um, and everybody drives their cars until the wheels fall off. And, yeah, they might buy a, a, a car or a truck between now and 2030, but I can guarantee you this, it will be new to them, but it will not be a new vehicle. That's just not who they are or how they live. And everyone in that family drives more than 50 miles round trip every day to either work or school. They've also got a gas-powered 4x4, a diesel tractor, a diesel one-ton, a dump truck, a bobcat, and a sawmill. So everybody on my street has diesel powered generators because we live on a dead end road and the electricity has to cross a river to get to us. So I don't actually see anyone replacing anything in their garages, barns or sheds with like alternative fuel energy machines until the ones that we now own legitimately require replacing. And here's the bad news for um, sort of the Everybody has to go green energy. Um, here's the bad news: like literally, it's not just an ad campaign. Nothing runs like a deer. We have an old John Deere tractor that has now been completely submerged in two floods in our bottom field. And guess what? You dry that sucker out, you put in some new spark plugs, and he fires right up. I I have killed that tractor more than once. Like, you know, I I, I know. I don't I don't wipe out the filter nearly often enough when I'm out there bush hogging. I know that's a vision you'd like to see a picture of. All right. I'm not bucking against electric cars here. I just want you to know that I am being realistic about tractors and trucks and trains that literally move the American economic engine down the road. I mean, we've been talking a lot about the supply chain. A lot of the products that end up in use by Americans have fossil fuels in their production and certainly, certainly in their distribution. So I'm just going to – I'm teeing this up not so we can start a big climate change debate here on the show, but so that you'll be a little bit more prepared as you're hearing the PR blitz that is about to unfurl across the American media. When you hear infrastructure, I want you to ask yourself this. Are we actually building an infrastructure for the future? And if so – Doesn't every home, isn't every home and every barn and every equipment shed in America going to need to be fitted for electric vehicle recharging in addition to broadband, which, by the way, also doesn't yet exist where I live? All right, that's just something to think about this morning during your commute and maybe not your Tesla. All right, Dr. Brett joins me next. We're going to talk about a range of medical headlines, including, including, I'm going to start off with this. I'm going to ask him to uh, try to explain to me how the people at the World event actually died and how you and I could avoid being crushed to death when we find ourselves in a sea of humanity. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. all right i'm going to get to your um comments and commentary uh a specific shout out to mike who is 120 miles from fargo and bismarck and doesn't know how he's going to get round trip in the winter if they take away uh his gas so there you go yeah i know i feel for you all right uh brett nix welcome back good morning sir
2: good morning carmen how are you this morning boy what a lead-in huh boy you guys are busy on the show
0: I, well, I don't know how you're going to keep your hospital running for the uh, requisite 96 hours um, if you're not allowed to have any fuel on your campus. But anyway, I digress. OK, so um, this World thing, like I, moms out there in particular are like we are having a hard time imagining we're ever going to let our kid go to any event where a sea of humanity might surge forward toward a stage and our kid might be crushed so it's it's a horrible, horrible um story. And I just wanted to ask you, like, how did these people die?
2: Yeah, I mean it's amazing. When you look at the uh the footage and you see, like you said, a mass of humanity in that space, you think to yourself, how is this possible? And it's really difficult because if you look at some of the commentary that's related to it, you take the sheer density of individuals and some were describing what I call a pressure wave. They started having this kind of oscillatory motion back and forth like a, a wave flow and what you found is there was more and more pressure forward and forward and forward in a condensed space and so you take the size of the crowd you sit you take now a limited space issue and you start having people especially those that may be of smaller size that they cannot see above to see what's going on they can't anticipate that wave of flow coming in and you add in anxiety you add in panic and if people are starting to hyperventilate in that space, your body's physiology does not like that. And so what I would envision in this circumstance happening is initially then someone would fall or they become uncomfortable, they start to scream, they panic, they fall down. And once one person goes down, others are going to trample over the top of them. And so you hear these stories of you know piles of 30 individuals stacked on top of each other. And you can imagine in that trampled scenario that there are some that are crushed, there are some that... Could no longer breathe, um, or would have like again an issue where an issue of anxiety and panic takes them over. They hyperventilate, they pass out, and in these circumstances, obviously, uh, they had um, you know deaths associated with it. They had over 30 people that were taken to hospitals uh, and many different types of injuries. But again, the reality of it is, it was a mass event where you have eight dead. And uh, when you watch the footage and you look at the information that's related to that. This is something that can happen in any area of a large crowd. Uh, this was unfortunately just a, a, a perfect storm, if you will, for those that were caught in the middle of all of that mix.
0: Okay, that is that is really helpful. Um, when, when I think about avoiding, um, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine if you were in the midst of it, how you could avoid it. Is there anything, if you find yourself in this kind of situation, like I'm thinking you move to the margin as fast as you can um you you know you you move sideways like you would in a um uh you know an undertow situation. Let me see if I can move sideways even as I'm being pushed forward so that I could get to the edge i mean does that sound reasonable?
2: It does. And actually, your scenario with an undertow is perfectly well ascribed because you think about this. The vast majority of the time, people there in these crowds, these scrums, they try to get elevated. When they elevate, they have a higher chance of falling, meaning they try to climb up around people to get up. You fall down in this circumstance, there's going to be a problem. Um, mm. What you do find, though, is if you can move to the margin, just like with, when you have issues with undertow, you don't try to swim to the shore. You try to swim away from the undertow. And if you do that in that 90 degree swim pattern, that's how you survive. That's how you get one of two things, not all the way out in the ocean, but to a point of safety, a point of freedom. And that's the exact same scenario that you're going to find uh, in this circumstance, which is once you see that, you need to move the margin. And sometimes you actually will use, and again, this is more uh, hype, kind of hypothetical in, in, in nature, you move the, you use the momentum to your advantage. If you have that mm-hmm. ebb and flow, as people are moving that direction, you move in that direction, and then you kind of circumvent away from it at the same time.
1: Yeah, never so never good. a great
2: scenario for anyone. But that being that being said, something to be mindful of.
0: Yeah, and I, I just I just confess to you, something I had never thought about prior to this. And I feel like if I haven't thought about it in advance, chances are I'm not gonna think about it. And I'm not gonna think of it in the moment. So we'll just use this as seeking to equip ourselves and one another with a you know, what if scenario and um, a little bit of at least my mind has thought about it in this passing moment today. All right, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to ask Dr. Brett Nix about the new COVID treatment pill now just on the horizon. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Brett Nix. Um, Brett, let's uh, let's talk about the new um, COVID treatment pill. What do we need to know?
2: Well, it's interesting. You know, the data is coming out right now. We still have to spend a little bit more time looking at it. But the reports to date are actually quite fascinating. You take individuals that have had COVID, that have COVID uh, that are not immunized in this study, and they're given a tablet. They're given a pill, not an IV, not an injection, not an infusion—something that everyone can take. And what they are showing in their early data sets are that they decreased hospitalizations by almost 90 percent. That would be typically 10 people who would be hospitalized. Now, nine of them don't have to be uh, because of COVID uh, in their data set. Now, what's interesting about this is we're looking at issues of illness. We're looking at issues of exposures in this in this treatment data set. And people are saying, well, is this a new drug or is this something that's that, that, that's come across as as a, a new uh, uh, innovation? And it's not. This drug was first identified Back in our last big beta coronavirus outbreak, SARS, back in 2003. And so last year, the company researchers pulled it up and said, hey, let's go ahead and study this for COVID-19. And uh, given the similarities between the beta coronaviruses, found that this one uh, works exceedingly well. And what it does is it goes in and just blocks enzymes the viruses need to replicate, to multiply within the human body. This is not anything that's relatively new at all. It's just the same type of treatment process that revolutionized treatment for HIV and for hepatitis C. And so right now we're really curious to see the full release of the data set to be able to look at it and to say, okay, you know, what are the concerns related to it? Are there any, and is the data really as good as it says?
0: Okay, so it's a potential game changer. I think there are definitely people interested to know if you think it's a conversation changer in terms of vaccine mandates.
2: Boy, I tell you, it is definitely a game changer as it relates to the management process, because there's even commentary related to if you have illness exposure, do we give this to you to have full prevention of actually getting and acquiring the beta coronavirus? What we don't know is if I take this pill and I still get it, will I still shed? And so I still have to be worried about COVID-19 or whatnot. As it relates to the vaccine mandated process, we have to recognize vaccines do a great job of limiting the level of infectious processing that you have, meaning lower use of hospitalizations, lower probabilities of death and injury to yourself uh, at the expense of of yourself, your family, your healthcare system. Uh, And so what you're looking at is you're looking at a parallel process where now you have a tablet rather than an injection that will do much the same if you have an exposure or you have an illness. The goal in the process here is to decrease hospitalizations and to decrease deaths. And so it definitely becomes a piece of the conversation related to uh, immunization mandates and the value proposition therein.
0: Okay. So let me just be sure I heard this part correctly, that the um, that the pill um, does much the same thing as the vaccine for people who are exposed or infected.
2: That's and correct. Just in so, terms
0: of limiting the probability of serious illness or death, like, right, right that's what, you, what it's designed to do. It's not, neither one is going to keep us from getting COVID.
2: That's correct. And what you okay. will find is the vaccine helps mount your immunity in advance to exposure the yeah. pill is if you've been exposed or you have covid prevents you from getting ill will there be a process probably downstream what people say even if you're vaccinated if you have covid you're going we'd like you to take this medication absolutely i see that coming but right now recognize it was the model that was used or was solely in the unvaccinated at least to the data set that has been released thus far
0: Yeah. It's super fascinating. Um, All right. um, I want to talk for a moment about how we can better care for our caregivers. You and I have been both reading um, on topics of burnout and healthcare workers who've just been overwhelmed. Can you just give us some ideas in this season of Thanksgiving, how we might better care for those who are caring for us in healthcare settings?
2: Yeah. I tell you, this is a, this is a a subject that is uh, obviously close to my heart because I'm a physician, and I'll be honest with you, physician burnout, care provider, nurses, et cetera, burnout is not new, but the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated so much of the negatives that we face on a day-to-day basis. Um, What you'll find in looking over the last year, almost two-thirds of physicians that practice right now have either considered a career change or considered retirement or just moving on to something else. Uh, This is real, and you feel it every single day as a patient It's not that uh, that physicians uh, don't care for their patients, that nurses don't care, but people are emotionally exhausted. They become depersonalized, and they have a difficult time navigating the challenges that we see every day, especially when you recognize myself as an emergency physician. We deal with people on their worst day every single day, and we try to do it in a state of compassion, in the best process of care and communication with our patients We just ask when when a patient comes in that they recognize we do the best that we can within the given constraints. And boy, if I was a patient and I had to wait excessive number of hours to be seen, I'd be frustrated as well. But recognize most people in healthcare right now are dealing with chronic fatigue. They're dealing with struggles with issues of irritability and isolation because of the challenges and the inability when we go home to separate ourselves from COVID, to separate ourselves from the work issues. And what happens and what you've seen is we now face uh, work shortages. We don't have enough nurses. We don't have enough care providers to actually do what we need to. And that gets into situations where on a day-to-day basis, most hospitals can't even staff half of their beds. And so that just exacerbates what the patients feel, but increasingly challenges the physicians and nurses to a point of frustration where we want to do more, we want to do better, but there's no longer the resources or the support to do so. So it is a perfect storm. And unfortunately, I don't think that it's going to get worse. So, patience, uh, recognition that people are doing the best that they can, even in the worst circumstances, are things that really go a long way.
0: All right, that is um, tremendously helpful. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. Uh, we want you to be encouraged as well. Uh, for those of you who are anywhere in the uh, healthcare world and industry, if you're looking for encouragement, collaboration, information, connection. We'd invite you, uh, encourage you to check out what's going on at Christian Medical and Dental Association. You can do so at cmda.org. Brett, as always, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
2: Carmen, always my pleasure. Have a wonderful day. Have a Tuesday. blessed
0: day. Uh, we're going to take a break for Breakpoint. Now I- Alrighty, uh, I went to the grocery store. I have started accumulating, uh, procuring the necessary component parts of a Thanksgiving meal. Yeah, let me tell you, word on the street that the prices had gone up. Um, Yeah, mm -hmm, that's true. So um, this cause a conversation about Thanksgiving. What are you going to serve? It's Taste and See Tuesday, or Tasty Tuesday, as I like to say. So, uh, I've got uh, turkey on the mind. I got Thanksgiving on the mind, and I thought it would be fun to find out. Hey, those pilgrims! Remember those? Remember those people? Four hundred years ago was the first Thanksgiving. I'm gonna ask Jonathan Den Hartog, um, what those people were like. What did they believe? What did they eat? I mean, they didn't even have forks. I want you to imagine your Thanksgiving meal with no forks? Yep. Mm-hmm. That's up next. You're on mornings with Carmen.
1: <music> This is Max Locato. Do you know the theory of the butterfly effect? It goes something like this. A butterfly in West Africa flaps its wings, and at just the right time, it stirs the smallest of air gusts. The burst of air grows, rippling around the globe, until it results in a hurricane in, let's say, Florida. Now, I'm on board with the butterfly part. It's not the result I question. It's the randomness. Who finds consolation in a philosophy of happenstance? But I do find great comfort in promises like Ephesians 1, 11. We were chosen from the beginning to be His, speaking of God's, and all things happen just as He decided long ago. The butterfly might stir, but only with the permission of God can a wing flap Create a hurricane. I can only imagine when that day comes.
0: All right, Jonathan Din Hartug is a back. Uh, he is a professor at Samford University. He teaches history. He's also an Iowan. I didn't know that until, uh, until this conversation, so we might have to talk about that. He's a historian of early America, especially in relationship to religion and politics, and I am going to ask him today about all things Thanksgiving. Jonathan, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen.
3: Well, well, thank you so so good to be here again and yes, proud proud to be an Iowan as well as a historian.
0: Okay, so, um as an Iowan, take us back to the Thanksgiving table. Um, you know, one when you were a kid maybe. What was on it? Who was there? And then we're going to talk about how that compares. To uh the first thanksgiving
3: yeah that 's a great great place to start because we have both our experiences um, and i 'll just think of of mine like we really did look forward to it, and my my parents would both get up early to uh, prepare and to you know take care of that turkey, so it was just right. Um, And then we would have uh, lots of fixings and, you know, look forward to things like uh, green bean casserole. That's a very Iowan thing and good stuffing and and done in several different ways. But uh, so we have these images in our mind and then we have pictures that maybe we've seen in books. But then when we think of the first Thanksgiving, it was probably much different than we imagine and probably wilder and more unexpected, which I think makes it fascinating (laughs) to think how... That experience uh, in probably 1621 uh, differs from what, what we celebrate today.
0: Okay, so here's um, here's how I would like to approach this. I would like to go down my, my grocery list. So um, turkey, do you think they ate turkey?
3: Possible, but probably not. There were wild turkeys uh, in the forest, but turkey are pretty wily- <laughs> Uh, birds, and the guns that they had uh, not uh, were not super accurate. So it's possible. Uh, the pilgrims talked about fowl, F-O-W-L, which probably meant more ducks and geese.
0: Yeah. All right. So probably ducks and geese. There you go. Um, and I am going to be setting my table. People are going to have a salad fork. They're going to have a dinner fork. They're going to have a dessert fork. They're going to have a knife. Uh, they're going to have a spoon because our cranberry sauce is kind of the liquidy. I mean, it's a little more liquidy. Um, and so, let's talk about utensils. What uh, in 1621? What would Milady have been using to set her table?
3: They would. They would be lucky to have fork and knife. Uh, spoon- spoons were much uh, were much less common even at that point. All right. So um just and- one is very easy put 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 the put your one fork on the left your knife on the right and you're good to go
0: <laughs> okay now let's talk about the fixins. um i I, th- I feel like there was not green bean casserole because i feel like there was not campbell's soup
3: and and the the french fried onions was was kind of hard <laughs> as well
0: <laughs> okay so what were the fixins? what did they have as side items do you think
3: Well, again, the instead of, you know, a nice salad, they they probably did have some garden greens. So whether that was like a cabbage, um, turnip greens, collard greens, but you think of those, they're a lot more bitter than the the leafy things that we would normally uh, have. Um, But but if they have
0: turnip greens, then I'm hopeful that they also have turnips, which is kind of like having potatoes
3: they They could have turnips so that, so mm-hmm. they would have some some uh, rooty uh, veg, root kind of root roots rather than so um not not potatoes, so no no mashed potatoes unfortunately what? um the uh, the other thing would would be a uh, corn they would have corn uh, this would have been Indian corn, so maybe not fixed the way we would, but they would have had corn as well
0: all right um so probably no sweet potatoes with pecans and marshmallows.
3: Yeah, no, no, not, not not a lot melted over them, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> How about cranberry sauce?
3: Although we think of cranberries as, as a New England dish, uh, they probably weren't harvesting cranberries those first couple of years either.
0: Okay, so, so you, not- see, you see now that people are listening and they're thinking, hmm, I can have a green salad and I can have some roasted root vegetables and I can have some waterfowl or maybe a chicken. I don't know. Can I have a chicken? No, duck and what'd you say? Duck and goose. D- duck and goose. Would, would yeah, have no been chicken. Easily, easily mm. get. no, no chicken. Mm. So two other proteins you
3: might have uh, venison. Yeah. We we know that they went out mm. and they did they did hunt deer, so you could have some venison. So our our, nice. our deer hunting friends would would be happy there. And there were some uh, foods from the sea, and this is this is the some of the delicacies that I always like to point out. They were able to uh, catch fish. So you'd have have some fish involved. But also in the fall in New England, uh, eel was very accessible. So if you if you're looking forward to some eel on your Thanksgiving day, that would also be on the table.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay. So um, now let's move to the dessert course. Um, Was there pie of any kind? Was there pie in 1621?
3: The English would probably have thought of pie as as crust, that you'd probably more savory pie, right? You could mm-hmm. you could again bake your bake your venison in there, bake your vegetables in there. Uh, our our sense of a pumpkin pie or an apple pie, and frankly, I like both. Why choose between them when you can have both? But Absolutely. they probably were not uh, taking advantage of either.
0: Hmm. We at our house um, like. Uh, the meal matters. Like, people love the Thanksgiving meal, but the pies matter more. We have a whole pie buffet. My husband is the pie maker in our family, and it's, you know, if there's not five or six different varieties of pie, he's not a happy man. So, uh, yeah, the pie baking at our house is a big, big, big deal. Okay, so my last question about um, Thanksgiving Day in 1621, and then we'll take a brief break and come back and talk about these people um but my question is this um was there football?
3: <laughs> Not exactly, <laughs> but this is this is a great connection that we know that on on that day they it said they engaged in games and sports which probably meant things like foot races um There was shooting competitions, right? So accuracy matters once again, Um, and and there may uh, we'll talk about this, but there were Native Americans present, and so kind of the the competitions uh, was part of the entertainment. So it wasn't exactly football, but you know they they did have have some sports going on, and so on on that side, maybe we can say, hey, there there's there's a comparison.
0: All right. Uh, Jonathan, Den Hartog, and I are—we're um, going to do two things after a very brief break. We're going to speculate 400 years from now, in 2421, what will people be doing on Thanksgiving. Um, and then we're going to talk about uh, the pilgrims in terms of their faith. Who were these people, and what did they believe? What were their religious practices? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, one shout-out for the green bean casserole lady. Uh, For those of you looking for an update on that, my comment that they couldn't have possibly had green bean casserole because they didn't have Campbell's Soup. Okay, that's actually because the woman who created the iconic green bean casserole did it for the Campbell's Soup Company. You may not have known this. She actually created the Thanksgiving uh, green bean casserole as a like as a marketing thing, right? Um, so anyway, that's what that's who she is. That's what's going on. She died when she was ninety two, a couple of years ago. That's what I have for you. Okay. So uh, back to our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Den Hartog of Samford University. Um, speculate as a historian. So we look four hundred years back. We talk about the Pilgrims and their Thanksgiving. If we were to, you know, mark this date, uh, this year in time, and then forecast 400 years from now, will they still be using forks? Will they still be eating turkey? What's going to be happening on Thanksgiving in, I don't know, my math is pretty bad, 24, 21?
3: Right. Uh, for, first of all, I think we're trying a lot of self-discipline here that, I, I don't know about you, I'm I'm famished now. I'm, I'm just thinking about, <laughs> about the Thanksgiving meals, okay, but we're, I we're already made, going to keep Let
0: me just go ahead and confess. I already, over the weekend— I, I like made a practice, uh, a practice version of our Thanksgiving stuffing because we love it so much and we only eat it once a year. And that seemed ridiculous. And so because I already had all the fixings, because I'm, you know, trying to get them in advance, I'm like, oh, forget it. I'm just making it. So we're, I know, I have no discipline. That's a confession that I have no discipline and we're going to have Thanksgiving stuffing tonight.
3: That is a great strategy. We actually have have (laughs) been practicing how we're going to fix our turkey this year. We're we're looking to to grill it. So we've had a couple of practice runs already. So these are good types of practice I endorse. Well, so the the first thing that as a historian I think about is what could the pilgrims have thought was going to happen 400 years from them? Mm. Right. Where uh, if you would have told them First of all, you would tell them, well, the people in New England would not be English, right? They they would say we we came to do this partly as Englishmen and partly for for the English nation. And you'd say, well, you know, not going to be ruled by England. And then you'd have to explain an entire American Revolution, or the the government is going to stretch from the Atlantic coast all the way to the Pacific coast. I think they would be shocked. Um, or or you might say people would be speaking when disembodied voices. From alabama uh to uh to Minnesota and connecting with people in Tennessee and broadcasting across- around the world they would say what what kind of sorcery is this mm-hmm. so uh, all of those shocks I think for them would probably be something uh to to think about for someone in twenty four twenty one now again i'm a historian i'm not a great prophet uh but i I think well, and we that, like, might be food as be, surprised then as they would be to think about today.
0: Yeah, and that food would be sourced from around the world. That, that on your Thanksgiving table, you could have a food item from literally anywhere in the world delivered to you overnight. Like uh, they right. would be, uh, uh, yeah, they'd be like, no way. Oh, that you could have somebody bring Thanksgiving to your house without you ever having to lift a finger. Like they'd be mm-hmm. surprised by that as well. All right. Well, you uh, could let's, order it up
3: on an something called an app, an app on your phone that's not connected to anything that uses electricity. <laughs> all, all of these categories would would have would just, just been them.
0: yeah. They would just look at you. Okay, so um, let's talk about their faith. These were people of faith. Let's talk about uh, the pilgrims as people of faith. Yeah. So
3: this is this is the point that if if the the world is continuing and. Uh, people are gathering in 400 years, I would hope that the one continuity would be thankfulness and gratitude to God. And I, and I think if if we went back and told the pilgrims, 400 years from now, people were giving thanks to the same God who had provided all things richly for them because of Jesus, and, they, and people were acknowledging this 400 years later, they would have been grateful. And I think if we can see a continuity again, if the world is still here 400 years from now, if people can be giving thanks in the name of Jesus, that by itself would be maybe the most powerful continuity to see.
0: Mm. I think that's so helpful, right? Thanksgiving is really about giving thanks, and that means there is one to whom we are are grateful, to whom we render thanksgiving. Um, Just talk about that. Just talk about the need for us as people of faith to give thanks to God— well,
3: again, this is some of the misrememberings, right? People say, well, you know, they were thankful. Well, who are they thankful to, right? And some textbooks say, oh, they were thankful to the Indians for helping out. Well, they appreciated that, but that is not what thanks meant in their, uh, their very uh, biblical sense of, of thanksgiving. And it was not to a general uh, natural force or, or to the world, but, but they were thankful for, to God and and so we can see these pilgrims coming over they were there because uh, they had received the scriptures they believed all people should read the scriptures for themselves and when they read there they they found the the good news of of Jesus and it transformed individuals it transformed communities it it caused a little group and we're talking just a, a few hundred in A corner in England—the town was Scrooby—to say, we we need to practice this in our church, and whether that was in England, or later in Holland, or subsequently in America, uh, they said, we have to guide all of our activities by the Word of God. And so they were deeply shaped by that, and of course, you can find many— Commands in the scriptures like i 'm thinking 1 Thessalonians five to give thanks always, and so even though they went through a lot of hardships in their first year and in subsequent years too they they aimed to give thanks so that that was a that was an outgrowth of what they were reading in the scriptures and hearing preached every every sunday
1: hmm.
0: i um I feel like redeeming the the reality of Thanksgiving um, as giving thanks to God for every good and perfect gift, which, you know, come from his hand. um, I I think that that would be a really good restoration for each of us um, and certainly for our nation. I mean, when we think about, you know, the day of Thanksgiving and the season of Thanksgiving and being called to um, give thanks, you know, how, how are we doing that as a secular people? If there is, I mean, if there is no God, to whom are we giving thanks? And so I think it's a good opportunity and reminder for Christians in the culture today as well.
3: To, to direct it to God. And let's, let's also say, give thanks even in hard times. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as I was going back and thinking about this, the, the pilgrims were coming out of the hard winter. Do you know that of the 100 pilgrims who left England, 50 of them died the first year? So an entire half of their number died the first winter so there were there were orphans. Um, there were only I think four marriages in which one of the couples di- did not uh, die during that first winter. so there were widows, there were widowers, they had lost a lot in that first year, and yet they were able to to find ways to give thanks and and mm-hmm. so Thanksgiving comes not out of you know everything's going well, and I 'm pleased with the world. It can also come out of, of hardship and, and hard times.
0: Jonathan, so helpful. Um, such a blessing to get to talk with you again. Blessings on your Thanksgiving with your family. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you. Hope you enjoy all that time, including the, the pie bar. That's just a beautiful image.
0: Oh, yeah, there's a pie bar, and there's going to be venison because uh, we, my husband had a successful hunt this past weekend. So there you go. We are... we. We do the wild turkey and the venison because, uh, yeah, that's, that's where we live and we have that opportunity. So thank See, you. Ra- um, thank raise you.
3: that all and, and connect it to the pilgrims.
0: Yeah. Oh, no, totally. Absolutely. But I still am going to serve cranberry sauce and probably green bean casserole. So hey, there you go. No, no
3: objections yeah. there.
0: <laughs> thank you so much, Jonathan. All right. We got to take, take one l- more day. brief break, you two, and then we'll be right back. All right. uh, I forgot that um, we're going to plan on using that segment with Jonathan again on Thanksgiving Day. So um, if you know, then it's going to sound like I'm making stuffing in advance when I'm really making stuffing on Thanksgiving. So, yeah, you know, I forget what I'm doing sometimes along the way. All right. I bet you do, too. So there you go. Um, Thank you for all the engagement on the text line this morning. Love each and every one of you. Love the engagement there. Um, If you are looking for resources to just bless your day or bless someone else today, we have a ton of great stuff posted at MyFaithRadio.com. There are opportunities there for you to enter into the drawing for um, Susie's new devotional that we're giving away. um, Opportunities there for you to get the verse of the day, a welcome packet. I mean, we've got all kinds of stuff going on, so don't miss out on it. Use it as a, a place where you can visit and then you can invite others who you know To engage as well, please use the material we're posting. Like, that's why we're doing it Uh, to pass it along to you and then through your hands into the lives of others. All right. I love you. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play music app. That way, you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.